Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Clean Tackles podcast. Dotun and Chuki are away for the weekend, so today it's Bio, Shola, and I, Chike. So hey guys, how's your weekend been? Mine was uh, uh mine was mixed. So today is my dad's birthday, and um, it's it's uh, it's it's a joyous day for me. But at the same time, I have Tarkovsky in my FPL team, and he considered four goals. So it's a uh, it's a mixture of things, man. How's your weekend been, guys? I'll start with you, Shola. How's your weekend? Uh very good one so far. Enjoying a lot of games, and at least a friend of mine won a title yesterday. So. A friend and a coach mentor. Happy stuff. Oh, interesting. Uh, how about you, Bio? How's your weekend been? Yeah, man, it's been it's been fairly relaxed. Um, you know, mostly indoors. Uh, stepped out a bit today just to catch some sun, as it was happening in town. Um, but yeah, you know, we're ready to go again uh, for another week or another <laughs> week. But I just want happy birthday to your dad, by the way. And I want to ask. Thank you. How, you. Came to, how does Tarkovsky end up in your FPL team as a starter? What's the thought process behind that? I was looking for a defender that was 4.5 last weekend, and they were at home to Fulham. So I expected a clean sheet. So I got him in, and then Jurian Timber got injured, and I had to take him out. I didn't want to take both him and Tarkovsky out and take minus four points very early on. So I transferred Jurian Timber out. Brought in, I can't remember who I brought in, but that person didn't keep a clean sheet. Anyway, it's just been a mess. So I, uh, I, I pride myself in the balance I have on my FPL team, right? In terms of my bench players, my bench players are guys who you would expect to also start for their team. So uh, if I ever need a bench boost or if somebody um, gets injured, having said that, though, this was a terrible FPL weekend. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think it's best we just move on. <laughs> All right, guys, uh, we'll start with the women's football. Spain, they're the champions of, um, of the world. And they've joined Germany as being uh, the only two teams to have won the women's World Cup and the men's World Cup, of course. Shola, how do you think the game went? It was a very interesting game. And I, 15 minutes into the game, I was like, the women's game has, it has come a very, very long way, positively. And it was a thoroughly enjoyable tournament all through with a very good final match as I seen on the cake basically. I think uh, Spain deserved to win. At the start of the game it felt very even until Spain took the lead or maybe a few minutes to them taking the lead and from then on till the dying moment of the game it seemed they were in control but yeah england also did quite well they fashioned a few chances hemp hit the bar yeah. uh, they will feel a little bit unlucky but i think on the overall spain edged it just a little bit i, I think this world cup win for spain is one of um, the great tournament wins in recent times and of course it, it seems like a cliche when someone wins the World Cup and you say, oh, it's one of the great uh, achievements and everything. But I think this one was special because last year, 15 senior players for the Spanish team withdrew from you know, the national team in protest. They, they cited problems with um, you know, lack of adequate preparations, traveling by bus when you know, planes would have been better. Just They felt like they were disrespected and they were not treated like you know, the men were. They were not given like, priority and all that. And like I said, 15 players sent in um an email requesting to not be considered for selection and of these women included um, Aitana Bomati and Ona Bache. Now out of the when things got a little bit better, I think towards the end of the year, um it's just eight of the 15 players made themselves available for selection and only three of those 15 senior players made the team. So of course Bomati, um, Bacha and uh, Caldente. So those are the only three players that were selected from those 15 players. So what Spain have done, or has done rather, is that they've sort of leveraged on the fact that they have a good crop of young players because they are under 17 champions and I believe under 20 champions as well. So they picked like a core of young players and um, that has brought them success. Um, it's, it's incredible that in the midst of this turmoil that's going on in the national team, they were able to rise above that and they are now world champions. So it feels good, or it's very impressive that they were able to achieve success in the midst of all this um, chaos. 
Um, Bayo, what did you think of the final? Who was your best player? Who was your player of the tournament? And what was your goal of the tournament? I, I, ha I hadn't watched much of this tournament um, up mm. until today, actually. And, um, and that, that's, to be honest, that's mainly just being due to like scheduling issues, you know, the timing, yeah. the fact that it's happening in New Zealand and Australia and all of that. True. Uh, so this was actually the first time I watched um, a game in this World Cup. And I believe ever in the women's game, you know, at least for quite a very long time. It's the first time I've watched 90 minutes, you know, from beginning to the end. And to be honest, I, I quite enjoyed it. Um, you know, so I was with my nieces as well, you know, this morning. And usually, like, if I'm with them and I start watching football, they're disinterested and everything. Um, you know, Aitana Bomati was, like, the standout thing for me watching that game. I, I think I put up on the group chat and that this morning that you know she's just like a shabby region in terms of her touch, the way she's able to like her press resistance, the way she's able to maneuver herself out of tight situations, and then she has the sort of acceleration that I'm not I don't quite remember shabby having like she's able to accelerate away from opponents, you know. And honestly, it was just I enjoyed watching, I enjoyed watching that, you know, and then just like you touched upon in terms of because I've, I've seen, you know, a number of articles in terms of the conflict between um, some of the Spanish national team players and um, the Spanish Federation, the coaching staff, and all of that, you know. So <clears throat> basically, these these women, these ladies have won in spite of their federation, right? And Spain have always had they've always had the talent to achieve this. Just like you mentioned, they're under 17 champions, they're under 20 champions. They've actually always had the talent to achieve this, but some of the conditions in which these ladies have been made to work under, you know, have probably contributed to, obviously, like, knockout football is a game of luck, you know. Yeah. But, and I think, to be honest, like, round the game, I remember Ada Hederberg also making herself um, unavailable from the Norwegian national team. Yeah, she was World Cup. Mm. Yeah, because, because of similar issues. Um, so I think women around the world deserve better. Um, goal of the tournament would have to be Sam Kerr uh, against England in the semi-finals. She's going to need some support. Kerr running at Bright. Kerr with the shot. Oh, I say that's incredible! Sam Kerr's goal against England was my goal of the tournament as well. In a lot of ways, it reminded me of Neymar's goal against Croatia at the Qatar World Cup. You know, both players had battled injuries during the tournament, so they were far from their best. But in an instance, they produced this sheer moment of brilliance. Uh, sadly, just like Neymar's goal, Kerr's goal had a lot of shine taken off it because they both ended up on the losing side. But what a goal that was by Sam Kerr. What's a goal? Uh, I think I agree with you on Bonmati. Three goals, two assists in this tournament. She's the reason why Spain haven't really felt the absence of Putiela because she suffered an ACL and she returned just towards the end of last season. So she hasn't been at her best. Of course, the ACL is one of the nasty injuries in football. It takes uh, about eight months to get back to fitness and maybe another four months, six months to get back to your very best. So Puchelas is obviously not at the very best right now, but in an absence, Bonmati has stepped up, has been the engine in this Spain's midfield. And she's not only the best player in the tournament. I mean, she won the award, but um, she's also right now a top contender for the Ballon d'Or because she helped Barcelona win the Champions League and the league itself. Uh, player of the tournament, I am on the same page with you guys. Uh, Aitana Bonmazi, I think she had a great tournament all through. She's she's got incredible touch on the ball. Her receiving, her body feints, has been magical to watch all through. Goal of the tournament, I will go with Linda Caicedo. The side shuffle and struck as well from Montoya. Now Caicedo. Oh, lovely feet, Caicedo. Finish. For me, it's 
I'm just a huge, huge fan of that particular skill. So I'm a little bit biased, but for me, that's my favorite goal of the tournament. That was, that was a magical goal. Um, I felt like because she, Colombia didn't go far enough, uh, she lost out on the young player of the tournament to Salma, who won it for Spain, but she is someone to watch for the future. And uh, of course, Salma plays for Barcelona and uh, Kaiser plays for Real Madrid. So in the coming years, you're going to see these teenagers battle until probably, hopefully, give us a Messi versus Ronaldo type of rivalry. Now, speaking of Barcelona, this is just something I observed. Um, remember back in the days for the Spanish team, how they dominated football in the late 2000s and early 2010s. They had like a core of Barcelona players and they built around. Now, this, this Spanish team, this women's Spanish team, seven of the 11 starters are Barcelona players. So it feels like almost the same thing where there's like a core of Barcelona players and then they're just building around this. And their coach, Jorge Vilda, played for Real Madrid, but also played for Barcelona. So he's someone who is like a disciple of the Johan Cruyff way of playing football. And you can see that translated to, their, to the national team. Just a random observation. The men's football, Manchester United, the game against... Spurs yesterday. Uh, that was the worst thing I've watched on TV since, I guess, Glamour Girls Part 2. Uh, Bio, what do you think about my United's game against uh, Spurs yesterday? In fact, what do you think about their start to the season? Um, so, I think the way Manchester United have started this season um, is largely in continuation of how they finished the last season. Um, so, Towards the end of last season, obviously the players were if they were quite overcooked in terms of um I think Bruno Fernandez probably accumulated the most minutes of anyone in um at this level football um during last season. Um guys like Marcus Rashford, um Casemiro only got breaks because you know he you know he got enforced break because of suspension and things like that and then you know. Um, and so going into this season as well, going into these first two games, there have been questions in terms of their fitness and preparation towards the season. You know, I've seen quite a lot of discourse around that. Um, also, um, to, okay, so I, I'm just going to say this. If you remember the um, our very first episode, you had asked me how I felt Oiland was going to help Manchester United achieve their targets this season, and you know, I I I I, I said something along the lines of you know it wasn't really up to him they have bigger issues to deal with in terms of how they move the ball from back to front and it's something that they still struggle with right um i mentioned the, i read i mentioned the axis of Juan Bissaka, Varane and Casemiro these are guys who the opponents are comfortable letting them have the ball and they are guys who could, and Casemiro in particular is susceptible to the press because he is the one of those, he is the one that usually has to receive passes with his back to goal and he's not the greatest at it. Um, and then you have this thing where Ten Hag seems to have leaned into the worst tendencies of this team. Um, and when I say the worst tendencies, those are, those are the things that have actually made that allow them to win points under his reign and that's the directness of guys like Bruno Fernandez. Marcus Rashford, Casemiro as well. They want to get the ball from, they want to get the ball from their box to the opponent's box in, you know, from zero to sixteen five seconds. Um, and you know, Ten Hag mentioned earlier during the season, uh, during preseason as well that he wanted his team to be the best transition team in the world. So I think he's leaned too heavily into those things. Um, United find it difficult to construct play. Um, they find it difficult to sustain pressure. Um, in the opposition third, and um, so if, if you are struggling to do that, you are going to struggle to beat a lot of teams, right? Because that's where most of that's where that's how you break down teams. That's how the elite sides break down teams. Basically, you 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 force the opposition into their own third of the field, and eventually they break down. And I feel like too many of Manchester United's chances they have they have they've had about they've had quite um a high xg. Yeah. You know, they've had they're averaging over two expected goals per game so far yeah. this season. But a lot of it has come from 
transitions from counter pressing. Um, you know, it, so there have been aspects of that. There have been periods in the game when they've been, you know, they've done, they've, um, they've availed themselves of their counter press quite well to uh, create chances for themselves and all of that. But it's not a sustainable way to create chances um, to beat opponents, particularly with um, without having their, their first choice striker available. And I think everything comes down. I think you can summarize a lot of these things under one umbrella, and that's basically recruitment, right? Um, but that's a topic for another day. No, I think uh, the recruitment uh, point is very is an interesting one. Uh, Shola, in the past you've been, well not in the past, you've actually been very vocal about uh, your displeasure in how my United have gone about their summer business. Who are the specific players that you feel they should have gone for in this window that will have solved their problem or at least taken them a step further than they did last season? Okay, uh, first, I probably won't say specific players A, B, C would have solved all the issues. Uh, but for me, the way I think about transfers is about doing a needs analysis. Okay. What do we have? What don't we have? And the issue in Manchester United's midfield last year, it was obvious for most people to see. The solution they have gone with in meeting Mount it has not been convincing for me. And the reason is simple. If you want to play 2-8 with Mount and Bruno, it basically means you are over-relying on Casemiro in the first phase of your build-up, which I don't think is a really smart decision. At Real Madrid, he had Modric and he had Cruz, who were big helps in terms of moving the ball from the defenders in that first phase of play. Casemiro is good at breaking up play. He's good at box action, surprisingly. I like his aerial ability. And he finds some interesting defense splitting passes. He fails on a lot of them, but he succeeds enough for me to say, okay, it's at an acceptable level. What was missing was clearly somebody that can continuously receive the ball and continuously pass the ball and keep things moving. So the solution they've gone for, I think I, I think uh, Bayo's statement of they've leaned into a particular idea too far, I think that's the best summary you can find. And for me, while the whole market seems to be focused on Lavia and Caicedo, I think it's a huge flaw in general uh, thinking in and around clubs' way of identifying players that are good for their projects. Uh, so, for example, one player for me, he had a really good World Cup and he followed it up with a really good season overall. And for me, that's Brozovic at Inter Milan. I've, I'm very surprised that a lot of teams, especially in the Premier League, needed midfielders. And everybody's looking at Caicedo and Romeo Lavia, who are both inferior players to Brozovic, at least for now. And Brozovic has gone to Saudi Arabia for about £20 million. And then we are spending £115 million on a Caicedo that is still currently inferior to Brozovic and it's 60 there about million on Elavia, who is even further behind. So for me, a lot of clubs are getting these kind of decisions wrong. They are going for young potential wow. talents, and then they are missing a lot of players in the market that can add values to their team because of the age factor. Yeah, I was going to say that because, because Brozovic is 30 it, and for looking at a long-term, they're taking a long-term approach, rather, when it comes to their team yeah, building. and see, I understand that reasoning. And in a few discussions I've had with people, I've tried to explain something. Football is very cyclical. In terms of the trends and in terms of... And these trends are both from a tactical perspective and also in terms of 
the market as well. So from a tactical perspective, for example, and let's, let me just give a hypothetical example. If everybody in a particular environment, for example, is playing tiki-taka, if you take that over a period of time, it's going to eventually end up in a place where you are not going to have many strikers and centre-backs and goalkeepers that are masters with the aerial ball. So what that does for you as a team is the first key that is going to come with a Tony Puli or Samaladai's long ball approach into that kind of environment and can do it well, you are going to have a huge advantage because what you do well is directly connected to what the other teams do not have. And it's part of the legend of somebody like Pep Guardiola or Cryoff or some other managers like that. If you bring Tiki Taka in an environment where people are playing long ball and you do it well because you are the first mover, in quote, in that idea, you have a lot of advantage. But when everybody starts to do it, the advantage starts to diminish because there's an oversaturation of that particular concept. It's the same thing in a transfer market. Now, when I, was, when I started watching football, everybody is generally trying to sign the players at the peak of their powers. And now, because those guys are expensive, the first movers to see that, oh, why don't we go for young, talented players? They got the advantage of that strategy. But now that everybody is already heading in the same direction, let's you for young talent, there's now an oversaturation of that idea and there's no value there again currently. And that's why we are paying absurd amounts of monies for young players that are nowhere close to those amounts of monies. Yeah, I think that's The advantage of the market has shifted it's no longer in finding young talent. If you ask me, the advantage in the market right now is signing players that are old and mature but are going to be available for cheap and can give you two to three years of good service. So, for example, I mentioned Brozovic. He's living for about 20 million. And then there is uh, Laporte as well, a centre-back that's also pretty decent. He's also living for a figure that is rumored to be in and around 20 million. There are top clubs in Europe that need centre-backs that are not looking towards these kind of players because, in quotes, they are old. But they are not old to the point where they can't give you two or three quality seasons. And when you juxtapose the 115 million of Kaikedo versus the number of years in his contract, and you juxtapose that with a 20-25 million deal on a Brozovic or another mature quality player, you'll find that the value is currently no longer with the young players anymore. It's actually with the older guys because you can get them for a very good price because so, nobody is shopping in that same market. Okay, so if I can just come in here. So while I agree with quite a lot of what Shola has said, so yes, I agree you can find value from time to time signing older players, right? But also, it cannot be it cannot be the central transfer strategy, and the reason is this. So, for example, this is the thing: when you look at someone like Casemiro, Casemiro was equally overpriced, and that just goes ties into the improvement issues that Manchester United have. And I've always said this: I mean, from the first, so a lot of a lot of people when when he signed were like, "Wow, Casemiro, four times Champions League winner, this that, uh, you know," and quite alright, he's a good player. But the thing is this, if you spend 70 million pounds on 70 million pounds on a 30 year old, and then you have to replace him in two in two years. And the way he started this season, they might have to replace him sooner than that. If you have to replace him in two years, is that really value for is that really good value? Um so fine, he helped you qualify for the Champions League, which you may not have done last season. But so that's short-term gains, and then probably at the going rate for it defensive or central midfielder now in the next 12 to 18 months you end up having to spend another 60 70 million just to replace him uh for me that 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 doesn't make sense um it, it, so you you have to there has to be some sort of balance is basically what i'm saying 
Yes, certainly finding the right balance between both strategies is key. And one team that has found that right balance seems to be Brighton. Now, Shola, this is a team that you're very fond of. How do they keep winning despite losing key assets? Uh, on the one hand, they have an extremely good manager who, in my opinion, replaced another manager that did a top-class job for them. But also in terms of the uh, overall club strategy, I think Brighton are one of the best-run clubs in Europe right now. And like you said, they're one of the teams that, has, that are finding that balance. They've recruited mostly very young players, but they are also flexible enough to identify the moments. You don't need the 19 or 20-year-old wonder kid every time. There are other players you can recruit. So for me, the idea about recruitment or building a squad is build a competitive squad, maximizing the resources that you have. A lot of the people that are claiming to be building in quote, long-term projects, they are wasting money because they're signing players that are too expensive. Chelsea is currently a good example. They've spent a billion thereabouts and they don't still have a squad that looks like a world-beating squad. It's because they've quite frankly overpaid for a good chunk of those players. Brighton, on the other hand, signed very good young players, but last season they went for Mitoma who was 25 already, so he's already at his peak, not a wonder kid per se, but there's value for money there for the quality that he's going to deliver for us and the prices that we can get him at. It's good value for money. So Brighton is flexible in that regard. This summer, they've gone for Muna, who is on the other side of 30. They've gone for Dahoud because he's available on a free and it's that flexibility for me. That's why they're very good at what they do. They also signed Welbeck a few years back and he falls into that same category. So, like you said, they are experts at finding the balance because for them, and I think this is just, it's just a factual maxim, and this is the mistake other teams are making, is that they've forgotten what the end is. And they've taken the means to be the end in itself. Signing young talent is not an end. It's a means to an end. The end in itself is to build a competitive squad at good value for money. That is what Brighton are doing. And that is what a lot of other clubs like Chelsea or Manchester United and a lot of other teams are struggling to do currently. Mm. Okay, so quick one. Where do you think, or what do you think is the ceiling for Brighton this season? Oof, that's a difficult one. I'm hoping we see them finish in the top four. Mm. But I know that's going to be very difficult. Mm. It's a very long season. Mm. 38 games. Uh, but I think top six is a healthy ambition for the club, and I think it's achievable. Difficult, but achievable. Okay, so elsewhere, we had Harry Kane, who scored and assisted on his league debut for Bayern. It was a 4-0 win. We had Bremen. Um, Kylian Mbappe, he scored on his return for PSG, but unfortunately, the drill to, um, to lose was 1-1. Then um, elsewhere, we had Jude Bellingham. He got a brace for Real Madrid. And his brother, Job, 17-year-old Job, he scored a brace as well for Sunderland. Now, when you hear two brothers, age 17 and 20, getting braces, you just think about the dentist. You don't think about them tearing teams up in Europe. Uh, so I just want to go away from these Bellingham brothers. What are your favorite brothers in football? I'll start with you, by What are your favorite pair of brothers in football um that's quite interesting because it's very rare that you see siblings who actually reach similar levels in the game right and even within the more popular siblings we have 
you know, are in this sport who have reached elite levels. You know, there's always one who probably is like a global superstar or like a proper world class player, and another one who is merely a good player. I suspect the Bellinghams might be, might end up being something along those lines, right? Um, but I'll have to say, in terms of um, what they achieved, in terms of um, their style and their legacy, um, I'd probably have to go for the larger brothers, Michael and Brian. Oh. Uh, the Debois brothers, I think, the Dutch guys, uh, uh, I think they were my... They were the first brothers I actually realized and really watched, so I think yeah. they kind of stopped. Mm. My favorite, actually, the Inzaghi brothers. I love the fact that Filippo had a better career than his brother, even though his brother won the Sierra uh, and the Scudetto at some point. But their managerial um, careers kind of uh, was the opposite of how their playing careers went. So now Simeone is the better manager by far, while uh, Filippo is still struggling to get that recognition. The injury concerns early on this season. We've had lots of ACL tears, lots of hamstring tears. So I'll just go on. I'll just run down the names of the people we've lost to so far. We have David Silva, who was forced to retire at the age of 37. He got injured in preseason, and you know he felt like I mean, what was the point of spending another year injured and then coming back at the age of probably 39? So he had to retire. Brilliant Bolo for Monaco, Emi Buendia and Tyrone Mings for Aston Villa. Thibaut Courtois and Eda Militao for Real Madrid, Jurian Timber and Wesley Fofana. And then for the other types of injuries, we have Kevin De Bruyne, Christopher Nkunku, Rich James, and just today, Philip Coutinho and Alex Iwobi. Now, it's a simple question. Are these players being overworked? A simple answer is yes. They are being overworked and these injuries are just... Uh... That just a reflection. First, the game, the intensity of the game is a lot higher than it used to be. And now we are also getting a lot of fixture congestions and the likes. And overuse is basically putting these players at the risk of injury. Uh, and for me, it's a... I don't like pointing fingers in one direction. I think everybody everybody involved here has to take some level of culpability and everybody also has to compromise if we are going to find a feasible solution going forward from the executives to the federations to the league bodies to the clubs to the managers down to the players themselves and their representatives. Everybody has to compromise something if we are going to find a feasible solution going forward. Hmm. Uh, Bio, do you think this is why Pep Guardiola cuts his preseasons short? Uh, he played just Manchester City played just three preseason games. Uh, do you think this is one of the reasons why he favors a shorter preseason and even places less emphasis on games like the Charity Shield? Yeah, I mean, it probably is because the, the, the breaks in between football these days are ridiculous. I mean, so maybe growing up, um, you know, you'd have, you'd have the last game of the season sometime, like Champions League final, sometime around the 20, mid-20, mid, like 25th, 23rd, thereabouts of May, right? And then um, the season would probably start, you know, um, sometime like early July, which quite admit, which quite admitted it wasn't long then. But I mean, these days we have Champions League finals uh, spilling into the 10th of July, 10th of June rather. And of course, Manchester City participated um, in the Champions League final. So it makes sense that uh, Pep would have, uh, his team would have needed more recuperation time than other teams. But I think in terms of the longer term trend here, I actually don't see fixture congestion being resolved. I don't see us playing best games anytime in the future. And the reason is this. Um, football, in terms of in terms of finances, right? All the clubs, you know, they want to they want to make money. You have venture capitalists coming into football now with the aim of uh, <clears throat> not necessarily raising revenues but okay but in terms of increasing the valuation of their clubs right because i always say 
there's very little anybody can do to raise revenues in football currently so what you have is what you have is because really you, there's no innovation that is going to come into football that will make the value of um showing one one game live on tv more valuable than it currently is there's zero innovation that's coming into football and so how do you raise finances the only way you can raise revenues right for everyone in the game or at least for the top for the top uh teams or the elite clubs in the game is for you to play more matches right that's the only way you get more tv deals that's the only way you get more from tv deals or you know increase tv deals that's how you ever have more money to share to clubs and that's why you now have this expanded within the next four years we're going to have an expanded champions league uh more group stage games you are going to have an expanded world cup with more teams right you are going to have a club world championship with more games right because um everybody wants to play more games so that you can get you can bring in more money and i mean where is it going to end really uh where is it going to end well um on a lighter note leno messi he won his first title with inter miami um the league's cup he was named the best player and the goal top goal scorer now it's interesting to note that in the 11 games before he joined this season they had won zero games but since he joined them seven games seven wins he scored 10 goals he had one assist and six player uh six hundred the match awards okay so um just to check in something um so if england if the england ladies had won the world cup today then that would be two teams um who of who of which um phil never was the penultimate ma manager is, is that the right word or like the previous immediate manager right who would have mm -hmm. found success um in the, during this weekend so um when you mentioned that they had they had won 11 they had lost they hadn't won any of their previous 11 games prior yeah, to that yeah. i think they'll never also had <laughs> they also had a big role to play in that <laughs> Ah, true, 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 true. Maybe he's the coach. Maybe he should never ever try coaching the game. His brother found out the, you know, the 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 hard way when he got hammered. Was it seven nil or eight nil against Barcelona back then with Valencia? Yes, that uh, was. <laughs> I'm just glad that no one mentioned the Neville brothers when it came to our favorite brothers. <laughs> I have been anyway. there enough, but yeah. <laughs> Why is that? Um. So I, I, I so I wouldn't call it beef, but I just um I don't place so much weight on the things he says or how he how he goes about analyzing the game. And the simple reason is this. He he and most of his teammates had the privilege of playing for one manager throughout their entire careers. And they seem to view football in that prison uh through that prison. And I think it's a pretty limited it's a it's a pretty limited um outlook in terms of analyzing the game analyzing what the team needs to win analyzing what the coach needs to win or who is a good coach so it basically it basically comes down to that really uh okay so just before we go on our break i just want to mention i mean we mentioned chelsea initially but uh, just to bring them back up again they lost 3-1 to west ham um Caicedo. The English, the British record signing had one of the worst debuts I've seen since, and at least Jonathan Woodgate. Jonathan Woodgate had an own goal and a red card on his debut for Real Madrid all those years back. But um, Caicedo wasn't that bad, but it was still bad. He gave away a penalty and their other £100 million signing, Enzo, missed the penalty. So we had one missing the penalty, one giving away a penalty. Chelsea are now with just one point out of six. Still early days, but I guess it's a bit concerning. Shola, what do you think about the performance? And um, did, you, did you get to watch the game? What do you think about it? Uh, the performance is more or less what I would have expected. Uh, some good things, but a certain level of brokenness as well always going to be difficult to sustain those good things but it's clear that there's interesting ideas it's clear that there's some quality with the players uh, but that brokenness means there's still 
opportunities for smart opponents to to exploit and that's exactly what West Ham were able to to do today basically for the big name signings that they have uh, like you said it's a debut to forget for Caicedo for Enzo his his frustration is obvious in terms of how he plays the look on his face he's not in the rhythm that he thinks he should be at uh, like we said I think uh, two weeks ago this kind of situations where there's a lot of signings the managers generally suffer for them except in occasions where the clubs allow them the time to weather that stuff if Poch stays till the second half of the season I think they will have a strong second half of the season but for the first half of the season I see them being very inconsistent All right, welcome to the part two of the show, The Bird Watch, where we'll be discussing everything Super Eagles and Super Falcons. But for today, just the Super Eagles. Uh, we'll start with the bad news. Alex Iwobi, who pulled his hamstring for Everton. I think he'll be out for about three to five weeks. Uh, Shola, do you think this impacts our preparation for the AFCON next year? Because he's going to miss, I'm guessing he's going to miss the first uh, international break. Uh, for me, he's a very important player because he gives us something that we don't readily have elsewhere. Uh, he's that one guy that can keep things sticking in terms of holding on to the ball and progressing play with short, combinative passes. Uh, we would definitely miss him. But for me, I, I don't think he's the biggest headache we should have concerning the Super Eagles. I'm more worried that we don't have a manager yet. At least we are not sure if we have a manager yet. Because the previous or current manager, I don't know which to call him right now, <laughs> his contract ended a few months back and there is no official word from the Federation that he has agreed a new contract and is continuing in a capacity as head coach. So, I that's probably my own biggest headache. But yeah, for us, we'll miss it will be because he's a distinct player for us and gives us something that we don't readily have in abundance currently in the Super Eagles. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm definitely in agreement with Shola. Um, midfield is one area where historically we haven't quite had um oh well maybe not yeah historically so i think historically we've we've been blessed in the forward areas of the pitch in terms of wingers in terms of center forwards who are uh, who are doing well at top level in europe uh but we haven't been that fortunate in terms of you know the, uh, the midfield and even going back to the defense and the goalkeeper so when you have a player who Particularly with the Wobby's qualities, right? Um, you know, the more creative side of the game, um, when you have such a player that is out, it definitely impacts the you know, what the team can do. So um on to positive news. We had Taiwa Awuni is scoring for Forest yet again. This is the sixth consecutive EPL game that he has scored in. Um is the most by a Nigerian and the second most by an African. Mo Salah and Emmanuel Adebayo hold that record with seven, and Awuni will have the chance to equal that record when he plays. I believe they play Manchester United next weekend. And elsewhere, Victor Osimhen he announced himself with a brace in the Serie A against Frosinone. He wants to defend his Golden Boot, not just the Serie A. He wants to defend both of them. That was good to see. Um, our strikers are really firing. We had. Um, they also had, I believe, Gift Orban got another goal this weekend. So that's six goals and six. Uh, I want to hear from you guys. How would you, what would your front line be like at this, the upcoming AFCON? For me, I think I'll have Osiman, of course, up top. And on the side, I'll have 
Chukwezi and Simon on the on the on the left. So Chukwezi on the right, Simon on the left, Osimhen in the middle. Uh for me to be honest, I cannot say yet and I have a little bit of a controversial opinion here. Well, let's hear it. I I believe we have a lot of center forwards that are delivering the goods for their clubs in Europe right now. I personally would think we should play a two striker system mm. due to how well our center forwards are doing. I would also say Osime is our best center forward. However, I'm not sure his starting shirt should be guaranteed. Hey. I think if we are going to go with a two-striker system, I would pick the two strikers that work best together. If Osimen is one of those two, all well and good. But if he isn't one of those two, I will pick two that work very well together. On paper, I like the idea of Murphy and Boniface. On paper, mm. it's now something that, yes, the managers probably have to check on the training ground. And, but on paper, I like it. It looks like something that will work for me. Uh, because we, we've partnered, and the reason I say this is, we've partnered with Simeon with a few other strikers. It hasn't really seemed to click. So for me, I would check the alternative. Put Osime on the bench. Can we find two strikers that work together? If we can, and like I said, we already have enough strikers that are doing quite well. Boniface is on a lot of, he's on good form. Uh, Gift Urban, who isn't even in the national team yet, is also an excellent form. We have Awoni that you mentioned, is also on top class form. Teremofi has been doing the, a top class job for two, three seasons. Now, so we have options where I would rather have a slightly inferior player to Victor, but that has better social affective chemistry with his teammates and as such improves the team performance rather than having the better player who probably is not the best fit with the rest of the players in the team. So I will go with a 4 4 2. If I would pick today to play a match tomorrow, I will be picking Victor Boniface and Terrell Murphy. And I will have Iwobi and Chukweze on the wings, basically. And then maybe Ndidi and Oyeka in central midfield. Uh, Michelle, I'll admit to you, I'm a very, very bold person. Very bold, but that was a very bold statement from you. you, 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 you. That, that, took, that, took a lot of, that took a lot of audacity to say. Uh, <laughs> uh, Bayo, what about you? Are you as are you going to be as bold as um, Shola and suggest the dropping of Africa's hottest striker right now? No, so I mean, obviously, I wouldn't be so bold. Uh, but I was actually um, there's a lot of sense to what Shola says. Actually, that. actually, it did make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. If you if you have so many center forwards who are doing well, mm. it makes sense to get as many of them into the team as possible, right? Mm. I, I also don't, I mean, so I think Chukwese has been pretty inconsistent in terms of what he brings to the Super goal, right? Um, and even in his club career, you know, uh, wingers tend to be mavericks, well, Nigerian wingers anyway. And I'm not quite sure that you want to go with a 4-3-3 or a flat 4-4-2 where you have wingers. Chukwese, Moses, Simon, um, these are guys who um, these are, uh, so uh, rather than have guys like them supplying um, Osimen from the wings because I, I don't think that works out um, I don't think so Osimen is also so again Osimen is a guy who um, you know obviously he's got, he's got a great partnership at club level with Baratiela I hope I said that right um, you know he, he, he thrives on he thrives on service from the wings um so I, I don't think I don't think our wingers play in a way that necessarily facilitates that a lot of the time. So playing with two strikers makes sense, or you know, uh, playing. So why not play with? I would go for a five. I'll go for a three-five-two or a three-four-one-two. 
uh, as opposed to having guys like Chikwazin saying, yes, if you want to change shape later in the game, you want to give the opponent something different to worry about, you can bring in a guy like Chikwazin. Other than that, you know, have maybe Osimhen, possibly Henacho, or whatever striker combination works, you could have Iwobi or Ihenacho behind them as well. And like, um, like Shola said, you could now then have Ndidi and um, Onyeka behind. It's not the most, it's not the most inspiring or creative front five or front six, but um, I think that could possibly work for us. Interesting. Well, I mean, I get why you guys would be against the Chukwese and Simon Osimhen up front because we've tried it. I believe that's what we used in um, uh, the World Cup qualifier against Ghana at Accra. I can't remember what we used against uh, what we used in Abuja, but I know in in Accra that was what we used, and it didn't work for us. And we've used it in the past, and that filled us, like you guys have said. I just feel like we're a better manager, and those guys uh, that could work. But you know what they say about uh, what was this? when you try something over and over and over again and hoping that it works maybe you guys are onto something the two-man system up front with Murphy and Boniface or a combination of a semen and someone else just to spice things up that could work uh okay so elsewhere we had Calvin Bassey who came on for his debut for Fulham they already down 2-0 to oh, who was it they played this weekend you know, Brentford. Oh, that, that was Brentford. Yeah, so they lost 2-0, 3 nil to Brentford. Um, Team Ream, I believe, got a red card for Fulham. So Calvin Bassi should be starting next weekend. Uh, so hopefully he does better because he didn't play the first game. He came on when we were already down a man and down 2-0 in this game. So hopefully he has uh, a better showing next weekend. All right, that's going to be it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Please share, subscribe, leave a review. I have to say we've gotten some great constructive feedback, so thanks for that. We really appreciate those. Uh, follow us on all social media platforms to keep the conversation going at Clean Tackles Pod, and we'll see you next week.